0: European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 24, Focus Issue on Interventional Cardiology by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Frontiers of Interventional Cardiology, Plaque Imaging, Thrombus Load, and Bifurcation Lesions. It has now been half a century since the start of coronary bypass graft surgery, with the first percutaneous coronary intervention following just over a decade later. The relative merits of percutaneous coronary intervention as compared to coronary bypass graft surgery for stable coronary artery disease have continued to be debated ever since and have been the focus of around 20 randomised trials and numerous registry studies, systematic reviews and meta-analyses, as well as recent ESC guidelines. David Taggart from the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, UK provides a comprehensive review on the topic entitled Revascularization in Stable Coronary Artery Disease, CABG vs PCI, a Combined Cardiology and Surgery Perspective. He identifies areas of agreement, disagreement and uncertainties on the role of percutaneous coronary intervention and coronary bypass graft surgery in patients with stable coronary artery disease with the aim to provide the basis for more appropriate patient selection within the heart team. The primary culprit of clinical events in patients with coronary artery disease is the vulnerable plaque. Its structure and biology determine whether plaque rupture or erosion occurs, leading to thrombus formation and eventually acute coronary syndromes. Until recently, the clinical assessment of plaques proved very difficult. Carlo Di Mario and colleagues from the Royal Brompton in London discuss in their review Invasive coronary imaging, any role in primary and secondary prevention? New modalities of non-invasive and invasive coronary imaging in an effort to optimise risk stratification of such patients and to identify subgroups at high risk that may benefit from an aggressive, personalised approach. Of particular interest in this context are novel invasive imaging techniques such as near-infrared spectroscopy and optical coherence tomography that can reliably identify thin-capped fibroatheromas. Multiple trials are exploring the feasibility of these techniques to guide patient management. A novel issue is the treatment of non-flow-limiting lesions at high risk of destabilisation and coronary occlusion. Asymptomatic patients at high risk of cardiovascular ischemic events may also be considered, with the intermediate step of a wider application of calcium score and angiography with multi-slice computer tomography and the selective use of invasive imaging in those with suspicious findings. Plaque destabilisation due to activation of inflammatory pathways is commonly associated with thrombus formation, and indeed, without thrombus formation, coronary arteries do not occlude. Thus, it appeared evident to most interventionists that catheter-based removal of the thrombus in patients with acute coronary syndromes will be beneficial, until proven otherwise by large trials. In the fast track, myocardial blush, and microvascular reperfusion following manual thrombectomy during percutaneous coronary intervention for ST-elevation myocardial infarction, insights from the TOTAL trial. Christopher Overgaard and colleagues from the Peter Monk Cardiac Centre in Toronto, Canada, provide another analysis of the TOTAL trial, that randomised 10,732 patients to routine manual thrombectomy or percutaneous coronary intervention alone in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction. In the current angiographic substudy, they investigated whether thrombectomy improved microvascular perfusion as measured by myocardial blush grade. Of the 10,732 patients, 1,610 randomly selected angiograms were analyzable for the primary outcomes of myocardial blush grade and Timmy flow grade. Secondary outcomes included distal embolization and complications of the intervention. Again, surprisingly for many, final myocardial blush and Timmy flow were similar in the two groups. However, thrombectomy was associated with a reduced incidence of distal embolization compared to percutaneous coronary intervention alone. Interestingly, distal embolization was an independent predictor of mortality with a hazard ratio of 3.0, while myocardial blush grade was not. Thus, routine thrombectomy, as performed with current catheter based tools during primary percutaneous coronary intervention, does not result in improved myocardial blush grade or flow grade, but did reduce distal embolization. Distal embolization may be an easily assessed angiographic endpoint to evaluate reperfusion strategies in future studies in such patients. The paper is accompanied by an interesting editorial by William Wins from the OLV hospital in Aalst, Belgium. Access for percutaneous coronary interventions has been heavily discussed lately with the publication of an increasing body of evidence favouring the radial approach, particularly in those at risk for bleeding. In the paper, The Comparative Efficacy of Bivalirudin is Markedly Attenuated by Use of Radial Access, Insights from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Cardiovascular Consortium, BMC2. Hittinder Singh Gohm, from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, USA, evaluated the relative impact of bivalirudin in bleeding outcomes associated with transradial interventions in patients treated in 47 hospitals of the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Cardiovascular Consortium. Among patients undergoing transfemoral interventions, the use of bivalirudin was associated with a reduction in bleeding from 3.46% to 1.67% compared with glycoprotein 2B-3A inhibitors and from 1.76% to 1.26% compared to heparin. Among patients undergoing transradial interventions, there was a more modest reduction in bleeding with bivalirudin compared with glycoprotein 2b-3a inhibitors from 1.41% to 0.79%, and no difference in bleeding compared with heparin. The authors conclude that bivalirudin is primarily efficacious in reducing bleeding in patients undergoing transfemoral interventions, while it provides little benefit in those undergoing transradial interventions. Given its lower costs and comparable outcomes, heparin should be the preferred anticoagulation strategy in those undergoing radial PCI. Outcomes following primary percutaneous coronary intervention for ST-elevation myocardial infarction have improved incrementally through the implementation of evidence-based practice as outlined in the ESC guidelines. Nevertheless, event rates remain important, among others due to suboptimal perfusion in the microvascular bed, despite restoring normal patency in the infarct-related artery. Microvascular obstruction occurs in at least 40 to 70% of the patients and is associated with adverse LV remodeling, diminished recovery of left ventricular function, and worse clinical outcomes independent of infarct size. Conceptually, a number of pharmacological tools should attenuate microvascular obstruction, such as adenosine and sodium nitroprusside. However, Heterogeneous trial design and the lack of reliable tools to detect microvascular obstruction have led to conflicting results. Cardiac magnetic resonance imaging sensitively detects both microvascular obstruction and myocardial necrosis. Thus, in their paper... Strategies to attenuate microvascular obstruction during PPCI, the randomized reperfusion facilitated by local adjunctive therapy in ST-elevation myocardial infarction, reflow trial. Anthony H. Gershlich and colleagues from the Glenfield Hospital in Leicester, UK, assessed 247 patients presenting with ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction within six hours of symptom onset in a randomized design if intracoronary adenosine or sodium nitroprusside administered locally to the infarct-related artery impacts on microvascular obstruction and infarct size, as measured by cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. Unfortunately, neither adenosine nor sodium nitroprusside reduced infarct size or microvascular obstruction. What is worse, adenosine was associated with increased adverse clinical outcomes driven by early heart failure, infarct size and reduced ejection fraction. Thus, adenosine and sodium nitroprusside should not be used in the setting of primary percutaneous coronary intervention. The manuscript is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by James A. DeLemos from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, USA. While stenting of large coronary segments is today a simple procedure with a very low complication rate, the management of bifurcation lesions remains challenging. Randomised trials of coronary bifurcation stenting have shown better outcomes of a simple, i.e. provisional strategy, rather than a complex approach using stenting of both branches. In their paper coronary bifurcation lesions treated with simple or complex stenting, five-year survival from patient-level pooled analysis of the Nordic Bifurcation Study and the British Bifurcation Coronary Study, Miles William Behan from the Edinburgh Heart Centre in Scotland, UK, investigated the five-year all-cause mortality based on pooled patient-level data from two large bifurcation stenting trials, i.e. the Nordic Bifurcation Study, Nordic Eye, and the British Bifurcation Coronary Study. Both trials compared simple provisional T-stenting with complex, i.e. culotte, crush, and T-stenting techniques, using drug-eluting stents. With 3.8%, 5-year mortality was lower among patients who underwent a simple, compared to 7% of those undergoing a complex, strategy. The authors conclude that for coronary bifurcation lesions, a provisional single stent approach appears to be associated with lower long-term mortality than systematic dual stenting. The paper is accompanied by a critical editorial by Antonio Colombo from EMOGVM Centro Cuore Columbus in Milan, Italy. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.